Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com podcast. All right, let's get started. I'm super excited about this one. I get to talk to Tim Nollett, who is the CEO of checklyhq.com, who are one of my all-time favorite companies. And why am I such a fanboy, you ask? Well, they have literally saved my life more than once. You'll hear all about that in the podcast. I've been trying to get Tim on for a while, and I am so delighted that he said yes. One of the interesting things about Checkly HQ is that it is bootstrapped. Tim started off doing it all by himself. The really interesting insight is that about a year in, he decided to devote 50% of his time to developer relations activities and credits that for the ongoing success of the company. But I let Tim explain everything in his own words. Tim, I am so, so happy to have you on the podcast. I'm such a huge fan, and I'm so delighted to be talking to you. Uh, Checkley is, uh, has been a lifesaver for me. Um, welcome, welcome. Thank you, uh, Earl, uh, Richard. Very happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, let's start with, with Checkley. Uh, what, what is Checkley? How did you, how did you end up running a company. Yeah, it's kind of a, well, I always jokingly say that uh, Checkly was a side project that got a little bit out of control. But uh, for folks that don't know, uh, Checkly is a, a monitoring platform aimed at developers, specifically synthetic monitoring. Um, and we're doing that now for almost reaching 800 uh, customers uh, from single developers to larger enterprises. Um, and what we do is um, we we ping your APIs and your uh, web apps or websites using Playwright in this case. And we do that in a way that's very developer friendly. Um, and we allow you to do a whole bunch of in-depth um, configuration coding, essentially, in this case with TypeScript or JavaScript. Um, that's where we are right now. But <laughs> it started with me, essentially, uh, this is already quite some years back, uh, trying to scratch an itch that I had and uh, building it by myself. Um, and now fast forward to clock, we're a team of 35 people, um, as mentioned, quite some customers and uh, still building away. Um, and that took um, yeah, a year or four or five already. I'm sure we're gonna revisit some of these parts, but that is the, the journey in one minute. Awesome. Yeah. It's so just talking about my personal use of, of your product, right? We build APIs for people and uh, they need to be monitored. We need to know that when we deploy a new version, have we broken anything? Uh, mm -hmm. so, you know, what I use you guys for is defining a whole series of uh, API interactions, right? It, it, it's, like a, it's like a really nice version of curl, mm -hmm. <laughs> except on a website. I can share it with my colleagues, and then I can get nice, you know, green or red indicators if I've broken stuff or whatever. Um, so, why, why was there a, a personal itch or something uh, a couple of years back? Why, why did you have to build it? Because there were there are existing solutions. Yes. Well. Oh. oh yes. Uh, we are not the only player in the market. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, I wish I paid a little bit more attention to some of that when I started. But I'm hey, not. <laughs> we're here right now. Um, so I was working at a at a company in Berlin. Uh, I used to live in Berlin for uh, around six years. That's also why I started Checkly. 
And um, what's interesting, actually, just hooking into what you just mentioned, Richard, I was missing a thing in the market that allowed me to do this. I came into a company, there was an e-commerce website with zero unit tests, zero end-to-end tests, but we needed to hustle, we needed to change a bunch of stuff. And um, the thing kept breaking because, you know, no tests, no monitoring, no nothing. So I immediately started thinking about, okay, we need something like synthetic monitoring because I don't want my CEO or customer to call us like, hey, I tried to buy something the shopping cart broke. Uh, and this shopping, this shopping cart was driven by an API, actually. So it was a single page app. Um, so you start looking around, the usual suspects. What do you have? You have pinged them. Well, it was a little bit dusty, you know, it hasn't been yeah. seen an update, I don't know, in how many years. Datadog, great, great product. Um, way too expensive yes. and way too enterprisey. Uh, so it was not good, good fit at the stage. Um, but the thing that kept bugging me most is that I wanted to do two things. I wanted to use the tools that I know as a developer, because I was wearing seven hats at the same time. I was doing ops. I was doing some coding. Uh, I even configured people's laptops. That's definitely not a skill I learned but or trained for, but someone needed to, to actually do it. And I was using JavaScript for everything. Um, so I was looking for something that was uh, for our checking websites. JavaScripty or JavaScript native. Um, and for my API stuff, I wanted something that was, as you mentioned, a little bit like curl, but also with assertions. And then I also wanted to use JavaScript for it because what I immediately found out was that every little API in, in interaction might need a little setup or a little teardown because your data is different, because your authentication mechanism is, might not be supported by another tool. So I wanted flexibility, um, and that was kind of the kernel for for Checkly. And then on the UI side, just how the product looks and feels, it needed to be a little bit more now, a little bit less, you know, 15 years ago. Um, so simple UI with simple, I don't mean not powerful. So you can still do a lot of things, uh, but it starts off very easy. And then I had a little bit of luck. And the luck was that this is not specifically for APIs, for the, uh, the browser side of things, synthetic monitoring on browsers. Uh, Google launched a new automation framework called Puppeteer, um, mm -hmm. with which you can drive things in a Chrome browser. Um, so you can write a little JavaScript and it spins that up. This is kind of like the competitor to stuff like Selenium or Cypress. And I just got lucky. I was, I think, the first person that built a SaaS product that actually allowed you to run these types of workloads in the cloud, um, even before Google did it. Uh, I still don't think they actually have it. And that was timing and got me some attention from some folks at Google. And they you know, started showing that at, uh, at their conferences. And that was kind of the acceleration uh, that happened after that. You keep using this term synthetic. Yes. What do you mean? <laughs> synthetic means there's a fake user in the cloud doing gotcha. stuff on your API, on your okay. browser. It could be something else, right? It's a term. You could use active monitoring. You, we've used that for a while. Um, 
And active monitoring and synthetic monitoring is essentially the same, uh, whereas the opposite of active is passive. With passive monitoring, you're, for instance, ingesting logs or ingesting errors, and you're essentially doing nothing uh, until something happens. And in our case, with synthetics or active, we spin up a thing for you and it starts prodding your API and starts prodding your website and then getting the results back and looking at if something is broken or something is out of line. Um, so that is the, that's kind of the, division where we are making um it's a, it's, it's a term that's not super 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 how do you say agreed on in the market but most of our competitors are using the term synthetics here yeah okay i like this because when i speak to my clients i i, I call it continuous production monitoring which is da, 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 da. <laughs> you guys need synthetic monitoring okay it's it's part of the um, best practices uh, I think it's it's really interesting. You you talked about this project where there was no unit tests and basically no tests. Mm -hmm. and the way that you overcame that in a fast-paced environment where you're building an MVP and you just have to get something done was to go right to the top of the stack and prod the API, as you say. And it's interesting from a uh, software development best practices perspective, it feels terrible, right, to say, oh, you can skip the unit tests and everything else. Um, <laughs> but in practice, yes, of course, you should have unit tests and oh, definitely all that stuff. But in practice, even a few synthetic API tests that you run every five minutes on the live system or every 30 minutes on staging, I found it to be hugely beneficial. Yes, absolutely. Um, and you, you don't believe it until you've actually used it, right? How, how it saves your life. It's, um, it, 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 it's, it's not something that I think uh, people really understand until they use it. Um, because we all have this, we've all had this experience of all the unit tests pass and the integration tests and everything mm -hmm. still works on dev. But then when you finally get to production, it all breaks. Correct. Correct. So... There's an image, I think it's somewhere on our website, that we are uh, we are targeting this continuous pipeline, right? This pipeline of, hey, development, staging, production. Um, but we're kind of tackling it from the opposite way around that you would think uh, we're starting in pro production, which is the typical target for a monitoring system. But we're slowly moving our way, let's say, back or to the left, shift left into the staging environment, into your uh, local environment even. Um, what we're trying to do there is essentially give you a very, 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 very high confidence that things are correct. Um, and you don't typically need a ton of checks for this. And I tell every new Checkly customer, uh, if they're in a SaaS business where they have some form of, you know, private platform that a user needs to log into and they get a dashboard, which is 99% of our users, um, just write that one script that logs into your production every 10 minutes with a user and checks a bunch of stuff that's on the screen, needs to be there. You just tested a massive amount of things. Your database is online. Your DNS is online. People can, your authentication system is online, all that kind of stuff. You kind of get that confidence. And what yeah. we're doing right now, even more, and this is going to launch in two weeks, you can already use it in beta with our CLI. We actually um, allow you to define that behavior in your code base. So 
what you're going to do is you're going to define these checks in your code base, in this case with uh, TypeScript or JavaScript, that's also fine. And then you push these checks through your CI pipeline um, and you deploy them only to Checkly the moment that you're confident, like, hey, this all works. But you can run them ad hoc, essentially as a test session at any moment. And this way you can fly in different different variables for your staging environment and for your pro, pro production environment. What is really interesting, the last thing I want to mention here is that this has kind of only become really possible now with um, that we're at a stage where staging environments and even local dev environments start to mimic production pretty damn closely. At least this is our own experience. I'm pretty sure there's some large enterprises which have a lot of restrictions there. Uh, we're looking specifically at finance. But in a lot of other cases, you can spin up, let's say, ephemeral staging environments or um, have your um, staging environment mimic production really closely, just as an, at, at a smaller scale. Um, with Docker containers. And exactly, with Docker containers and cheap cloud infra, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And then you write this one end-to-end test, which could be an API test or it could be a browser-based test. It doesn't really matter. It's all end-to-end in the end. And you use that one across local, across staging. And at the end, when you're confident that it works, you push it to us and then we run it for you on the clock. Every five minutes, every 10 minutes, you have that same... Uh, visibility and reliability across the whole pipeline. The other thing you get from those continuous tests is uh, this is something that happened uh, happened to us recently. So we had an API endpoint um, that was accessing a database table that was incorrectly indexed. Mm. As uh, user adoption grew with this client, uh, that endpoint got slower and slower and slower and slower. So it's not just it's not just the you know run the tests and see did you break something. It's also um, you're also catching things that are slowly breaking. Yes, over time, right? Things that you things that in in, in previous lives for me would have been crises, right? Come in at the weekend and work to fix them because the you know we've used up all the disk space, ready <laughs> mm-hmm. logs or something. Um, kids these days I don't know how easy they have it with their serverless stuff. <laughs> uh, I start- Nagios, whole hand world. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, Nagios. Yeah, that's right. You could trace a line of, of evolution from Nagios all the way up to Checkly, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, but what you're saying, Rich, is, is completely right. Um, just before we started recording this podcast, there was we had an outage ourselves. At least we thought because there you have no control in many cases over your production environment, and mostly this is in browser-based workloads because there's scripts and there's tracking pixel and there's all kinds of mm. stuff running inside a typical uh, website or web application that can screw up your experience for the user. Uh, that's why you need it on production. In this case, I know there was an outage, I think, at LinkedIn. And yeah, we had a little bug in our own website that didn't handle that you know, nicely. And suddenly, because we use our own product to monitor our own stuff, we had a whole bunch of checks failing. Like, why is that? And then we looked at the data. This LinkedIn tracking pixel is taking 35 seconds to load or doesn't even load. And yeah, it's up to us to just, you know, make the website nice that it doesn't break, but it did break. 
Um, so, um, yeah, we kind of learned there from our own stuff. This is typically something you don't have at staging, right? Because you might not even have that pixel there because it doesn't make any sense. You also need to take into account all the stuff that might just happen organically, which could also be an index uh, being broken, uh, data volumes just getting bigger in general is always a thing. Um, there's, there's so many other stuff that you need to keep in check. Um, yeah. Let's pull it back to uh, developer relations because I think one of the really cool things that Checkley did and that, that you did in the early days when it was just yourself uh, was the way that that the way that you spoke to developers. And I don't know if you had a specific plan, like a proper engagement strategy, or was it just a natural the natural way that you communicated with developers? Um, but let's talk about officially your developer relations strategy, sure. way, I suppose, from the beginning before it was even a conscious strategy up to where you where you are now and what the future is going to look like. Great, yeah. Um, to be completely honest, I did not really know what developer relations was when I got started. Um, I didn't have a clear view of, of that role. Um, also, I hadn't worked in a company where it was taken, or they were doing it, but they didn't call it that. Um, but I can clearly remember uh, so at least for one and a half years, I was hacking on Checkly myself, got the first couple of customers. And what you typically tend to do as a developer yourself, you like writing code. You think ship another feature, ship, you ship another feature, you ship another feature, and the customers will come. Um, quickly, you learn it doesn't work like that. Uh, it's also in all the books. But, you know, I read the books and I thought I'm different. Uh, yeah. Turns out I'm not different. Um, so I consciously made the choice. I think about a year in, uh, this was part-time also, right? I was not doing this 40 hours a week, um, to essentially balance my efforts. 50% is on features and coding, 50% is on writing blog articles and trying to, you know, get some eyeballs on this. Um, I didn't have a Twitter account. I was rarely on Hacker News, so I signed up for that stuff. Um, and I made a conscious choice that the blog articles should be very technical, very in-depth, and they should always be about learning something. And they should be, I want to say fairly unique, but at least unique enough that there was a specific angle to it, right? Instead of like, hey, this is how you set up a next JS app, or this is how you install Express on a node. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a million of them, and that's not really interesting. Um, so I did that, and that was really interesting. And I had to force myself to do that. And I spent a lot of attention and detail on the code examples and graphics and all that kind of stuff. And then I also did not want to have a, I mean, when you're by yourself, it doesn't make any sense to have kind of a corporate tone or a tone of voice. It just, everyone can find could could find out in two seconds that, hey, this is a, you know, this is a hacker project by one person um so it would be really weird so you just have to you know talk to people like you would normal normally talk to people so it's an easy tone of voice don't take yourself too seriously take your customers and your product very seriously but not yourself right and um yeah that's the first remember our, our first interaction it was, it was actually i think two or three years ago probably I, I, I wanted some i wanted some feature but you were very easy to reach I yeah Twitter conversation or something? I don't know. Uh, Could definitely be. 
Um, yeah, that this this kind of came a little bit later. So I think those were the three kind of pillars that kind of came together without a lot of conscious thinking. Uh, uh, the tone of voice needs to be easy. The uh, content needs to be in depth, and I'd rather have a longer blog post and a shorter blog post. But then also the talking, oh, sorry, the use of words in the blog post should be conversational, and there should be many examples. And then the third thing was, you know, um, I have opinions about how the product should work. I also have opinions on what checklist should be and what it should not be. Um, I had a big sticker on my monitor. I always said, I don't want to build a better kingdom. I want to build something different. Um, and this comes with, for instance, a public roadmap, uh, which I will come come to back later, where we, hey, we just GitHub and people can just ask for stuff. And I will try to respond as quickly as possible. And sometimes we, you know, actually many times, we just build those features. But, um, you know, we do it in our way. We don't do it one-on-one. -on -one, so that also rarely works. Um, so, yeah, you need to be very easy to reach. And you need to speak like you normally speak. And don't fuss about it too much, I guess. <laughs> this it doesn't make sense. You've used, you've, used the, you've used the phrase tone of voice. Yes. Um, so... I think that's a that's a really important point because I was uh, I was listening to another developer relations podcast and um, one of the points made on that is that um, you know sometimes developer advocates can be pushed into content production mm -hmm. you know, and, the, and the business is measuring metrics like the number of blog post views. Mm -hmm. um, but if that metric becomes the thing, then all that ends up happening is that. Um, you know, it's it's you generate like listicles and you know this kind of uh, clickbait content, low value mm -hmm. clickbait content. It's it's super easy to push up views, mm -hmm. um, but then you end up with zero customers <laughs> yep. from from that content because, as you say, right, it's just another express install tutorial. Mm -hmm. uh, so the tone of voice of the developer relations content is super critical. Yes, and it goes further than just do, uh, uh, DevRel. It also goes into how you, it's just very simple, <laughs> what's the landing page of your product look like, right? Um, which which part of the industry do you want to align yourself with? Um, if you look at our industry, I mean, it's kind of, it has a lot of smaller companies, even smaller than we are. Uh, single uh, uh, indie hackers, just like I was back in the day, uh, till mega, mega companies that are NASDAQ listed. Um, and which were in that spectrum, where do you want to be? Um, it does change, by the way, over the, over the years. Um, but tone of voice was always a thing. I think tone of voice and I, I always call it like art direction in the end, uh, because I'm not a trained designer. We have a design team now, we have a marketing team, um, but I still am, I'm always fussing about the art direction. Like, are we using the right tone of voice? Are we aligned, are the images that we use or the, the assets, are they interesting enough? Are they, you know, uh, did we spend enough time to make them look and feel like a, what a developer would enjoy consuming in the end? Um, but it does change because we have different audiences now also, right? It's not only the end user that we need to speak to. Uh, we also need to speak to other people. 
Yeah, more money, more problems. That's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm interested in, so, so you managed to get, you grew, uh, you bootstrapped a little, and then you managed to get funded, BC yes. funded, congratulations. In the in the pitches and the discussions with the people you pitched to, and then the ultimate investors, um, did, did developer relations, did your engagement with the developer community, the, the way that you were approaching that marketing feature, uh, was that recognized as, as part of the, the key success for the company? Mm. I was curious. I'm trying to remember that. Um, well, mostly <laughs> during the first... So first, let's say, uh, I don't know if, if all listeners are uh, you know, aware of how this typically works. So I started by myself. I uh, got a little bit too much because doing everything by yourself is quite a lot of work, I can tell you. Um, two co-founders joined Hannes and Timo. I met them in Berlin, um, and you know uh, things accelerated. Then we did a first funding round. This was right at the start of Corona, so early 2020, um, and we didn't have a marketing team, so there was no marketing. Essentially, it was me. You know, hey, we have a new feature. Hey, I wrote a blog post, and that's kind of where it ended. Uh, and we put that on Twitter and on Hacker News, and we sent it out with some emails. There was no structure. There was no cadence. There was no... That was it. Um, then we did another funding round a little bit later. And, you know, one of the things, we still didn't have a marketing team. Uh, it was still me and sometimes uh, one of the co-founders or one of the engineers uh, writing a blog post mostly around product launches because we thought like, hey, that's what you do, right? Yeah, that's kind of how it works. Um, sure. <laughs> the topic became very much during the funding route, you need to build a marketing team because one of the biggest issues with building a startup is that people don't know you exist. Yeah. Uh, that's a crucial, crucial problem that you need to figure out. Um, so it became a topic because we didn't have a team to actually make it structured and and, and that there's a cadence that people can follow us and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I have a, an agenda to push <laughs> asking that question. And it does sound, <laughs> I guess, that developer relations as a concept wasn't wasn't a primary point of discussion, let's say, with, mm -hmm. with the investors, although they understood the importance of marketing. Um, but if you look at the discussions in the developer relations community, um, for example, one hot topic is always, you know, does developer relations live under the CTO or does it live under the CMO? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or does it live as its own little thing because it has to be cross-functional? Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds to me like the, the, the investor mindset is still in the space where that's, stuff like developer relations is clearly just another marketing activity. Yes. Um, but yeah, I would say, that doesn't really speak to its power or what it does because I wouldn't respond to traditional marketing. <laughs> the reason I'm using Checkly and the reason my customers are using Checkly is, well, the reason I'm using it is, is because it spoke to me as a developer. And then the reason my clients are using it is because I, as a developer, are recommending it. And frankly, mm -hmm. they're not going anywhere near your marketing, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're using it because they trust my recommendation. Um, so I, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Obviously, you love your investors and all that sort of stuff. But in general, do you think that developer relations needs to become more, especially for 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 technology uh, delivering SaaS companies, needs to become more recognized as an as an important part of the execution mix? I think it, I, I 
But I'm seeing the companies that we interact with, and some of them are customers, some of them are partners, some of them are people we integrate with, the companies we integrate with. Um, they take it very, very seriously, and we also do. Um, so we have our great full-time DevRel, Stefan, on board now, and he's doing an amazing job. Just to be clear, he falls under the CMO. So he falls, he works with uh, Cynthia, our CMO. Okay. Uh, we are a pretty tiny company. So, you know, uh, with 35 people, there is no real... How do you say, hey, this is your department, this is your department. Just for, you know, for for career development, it is like this. Uh, But I work with Stefan almost every day. Um, And we interact all the time. And he helps out with so many things in our community. Um, And I think in our, we are a tech product or a developer product selling to developers. I think you can't really... I wouldn't know how we would do that right now without a very firm, let's say, bottoms-up, DevRel-oriented marketing motion um, where the marketing is, you know, yes, you are marketing. Yes, you are trying to sell a product, but you're also trying to have fun with your own product. You're also trying to engage people. You're trying to show cool code examples. You're trying to show cool new updates to the project uh, or to the product that, you know, fix a specific thing. Um, this is all kind of fun to do. Um, it's still work. It's still marketing, but it's also coding. And I use, um, which is really interesting, I use our own DevRel, Stefan, in this case, to you know, test out product and we engage with users and then they tell us things. And this is not a user research interview. This is not a survey that we send out. This is just a person asking like, hey, I wanted to code that and that and that interaction with Checkly, but I found a bug or am I doing it wrong? And then, no, no, you're actually doing it right. You just need to, you know, flip this around and then work. And like, oh, great. And then we're thinking like, hmm, why isn't that clear in our product? It's a very good feedback. Um, so it's a very different interaction um yeah okay so and that and that sounds it is very valuable yes so let's just take that to its kind of logical conclusion as you grow so in the same way i'm gonna throw in steve jobs reference right in the same way that steve jobs never stepped back from design and Mm -hmm. that's part of why people love apple right because they knew they were getting Steve Jobs' input into design. Mm-hmm. Um, is it always going to be the case that for Checkly, we know we're getting a little bit of Tim at the coding level, at the very yeah. much the, the, the using the product, as opposed to Tim, the executive sitting in the corner office <laughs> looking at spreadsheets, right? <laughs> oh, no, if I can help it, no. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Um, but uh, but uh, let's 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 break that down a little bit. Um, um, yes, things change, and I do do different things than I used to do a couple of years ago. Do I still code? Yes, actually. Uh, but I went through a phase in the last two years where I tried to find my role because I really enjoyed doing what we call DevRel, although I didn't really know it was called that way that that term. Um, and I was looking, yes, definitely at spreadsheets also. You do investor calls, you do, you know, all kinds of things. You do uh, team management because, you know, we have 16 engineers now. Um, so you, and you sit at the top of the, top of the pile uh, just because of my job title. Um, I did find out personally that 
there are things that I didn't enjoy about that. Uh, there are things that I wanted to push to other people. Uh, luckily, I have a very good engineering director, Daniel. Hi, Daniel, if you're listening, um, who takes off a ton of these things off my plate, which means that in the end, and kind of what you just said, Richard, was, yes, I need to still be the art director, or it's actually Daniel, my engineering director says, I need to be the person, that barman at, behind the bar just leans over and thinks, this is the right thing. Yeah, it's the right thing. And then gives the thumb, the thumbs up. Um, and that is my role um, still. Uh, I do active coding still. I do active product management also, which is a completely different skill I had never even heard of that product management was was actually a thing. Is a thing, yeah. And a difficult thing. <laughs> it's a difficult thing, and I'm still still kind of trying to figure out what it what it actually is. Luckily, we also have full time product managers that teach me how to do that stuff. Um, last thing here is that yes, the company grows and you get different audiences, right? So in the beginning, it was basically one on one with devs. That's it. Super easy. And then the first bigger deals start coming in and then the deals get even bigger and the deals get even bigger. And suddenly your go to marketing, which we also have, so it's sales, support and customer solutions or customer success. Um, they have they have targets where just like any other company in that case, sales need to reach their target and they cannot sell to a single developer 30 bucks for a monthly plan um, because that will not turn us into a healthy company. Uh, you need those bigger deals. Uh, although we still want to have the free plan, you're going to use it free and we have a self-service plan where you sign up with your credit card and pay as you go. Um, these larger deals are very interesting, of course. They, and they're more interesting the older you get as a company. In the beginning, it's way too much hassle. You don't have your SOC 2 compliance. You don't have your all the other security stuff. You don't even have the people to help these larger companies. But now we do. And then you have a different persona that you also need to convince that your product's pretty cool and it's worth paying for. So suddenly there's a buyer persona. Suddenly there's a procurement department. There's a security survey that you need to do. Um, you need to start convincing not individual developers. You need to start convincing CTOs, CIOs, uh, all that kind of stuff. And they just respond to different stuff. Um so that adds to it. We have DevRel and you have, let's, let's call it more traditional marketing or more specific marketing for buyer personas. Um, that is something that we're doing right now. And honestly, if you would mind back the clock like one or one and a half years, we had none of that, but we need to do that right now. What I'm hearing is that DevRel changes from the start, whereas one person, mm -hmm. and, you know, you're, you're uh, a bootstrap and seed stage, and then you move up the chain and you, developer relations starts having things like sales engineers at its edges to deal yes. with enterprise clients. Um, if you look at the literature and the best practice around building funded startups, there's large numbers of people that talk about, you know, when is the best time to hire your first salesperson? Mm -hmm. When do you need to bring marketing on? You know, the the you know the people who are performing initial roles as generalists then need to move to specialities. When do you start hiring people with previous experience? What type of experience? All that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Lots lots of content around 
sales and engineering and marketing sides of things, but nobody has really spoken or defined this journey, hmm. which is the what does developer relations execution look like over a, a sort of traditional five to ten year growth journey of a, of a successful startup? Um, because it, you're experience, you're making it up and experiencing it and doing it really well as you go. Um, but there's not there's not really any book to read, is there? There's no, I don't there's no, um, you know that book, the hard thing about hard things. Yes, uh, which is really good on on a lot of stuff for for for, for growth, growth stage startups. Uh, but that's no help with developer relations, right? <laughs> Nobody's written about it yet. Honestly, I've I've learned personally a lot of things from uh, so our full time DevRel Stefan, who uh, and also from from just the marketing team in general, because I was doing it as we uh, uh, visited earlier. I was doing it on a hunch, right? Like I think we should do this, and because this is what I like doing, and some of that worked really well, some of it didn't. Fine, you tend to focus on the things that work, but. Very recently, let's say in the last maybe 10 to 12 months, um, we started doing more YouTube videos uh, on um, education around how you use the Playwright test framework, which is a very big piece of our product. It's an open source browser automation product, but you know, it's code and it's its own whole world. Um, I don't watch developer videos on YouTube. I watch YouTube, but I would never think about doing that, maybe because I'm old. I just don't like it, but it works great, by the way. That's why I was totally wrong. Um, then we had a community, or we have a community, which we started pretty recently, and it's grown pretty nice, and it's been amazing. Um, just on Slack, um, I was skeptical, to be completely honest. Again, because personally, I would not use that. Uh, I've tried using it with some other products and it didn't really work. So I was biased, like, ah, that's probably just not a good idea. I was completely wrong. Um, so there's all kinds of things that kind of grow. And was it the right time to start a community? I don't know. We'll probably find out. Maybe not. Maybe yes. Could have we done it earlier? Could be. I have no idea. So there's no real roadmap there. Specifically, you try things out, and if they don't work, you you know you abandon them. You shut them down. Yeah. Pay close attention. I think take notes because your experiences are um, they're valuable because this is this mm-hmm. this previous five year period is the first time that people have been explicitly doing developer relations. Oh. I, I was doing it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but I didn't know, like you said, right? We didn't call it that. It was just mm-hmm. blog posting, speaking at conferences and meetups and, you know, putting that open source. Uh, but it was just stuff you did. Um, so I think I, I, I think your experience at this point in time, Checkley's experience as it goes through this growth is, is very interesting. Um, we should talk again in yes. a year or two or three Absolutely. Uh, and do a retrospective, right? <laughs> I hope so. And then I have maybe a whole army of DevRels. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Tim, thank you so much. Um, we have come to the end of the road. In fact, we've way over time because this is super. Oh, no. I could go forever. Uh, thank you so much. No problem, Richard. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgig.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, 
read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com newsletter or follow our Twitter at voxgig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.